Welcome everyone to Storytelling Podcast Week and our first session of our final day of the week, the Horror Short Story Salon, featuring Janina Mathewson from Within the Wires, Nora Uncle from Cryptids, and John Grills from Creepy, led by our head of marketing here at Podbean, John Kiernan. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Storytelling Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions like this one with narrative nonfiction podcasters, audio drama, and fiction podcasters from across our world and our imaginations. If you have a chance, check out the recorded episode showcase featuring some exclusive and favorite episodes on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel from many of the podcasters participating. You can also replay the live streams from the week on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel. So make sure to download the Podbean app and follow the channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. And now we'll hand it off to John. Hello and welcome. Perfect. Norma Jean, thank you so much for the introduction. And I am very excited to be here with Janina Mathewson, Nora Uncle, and John Grills to uh, really dive into the topic of horror. And especially, I'm really excited because we get to hear some horror stories today. So once again, I want to thank our guests for making the time to come to our show today. Um, so I'd like to go ahead and start off here. Basically, I'll give everybody a little bit of a rundown as to how this panel will work here. Um, as we have some of our esteemed horror aficionados here, I think we'll go ahead and we'll introduce each one as they come in for their uh, panels here and they come in for their uh, story reading. And what we'll do is we'll give each of our panelists uh, about a minute or so to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about the inspiration of and talk a little bit about their story. Then we'll hand it off to them to give the reading of said story. Um, after that, I think it would be really cool if we had the other participants give some feedback and give their opinions about uh, what they thought of the excerpt. So if that sounds good with everybody, then we shall get started here. And I'd like to start off with Nora Uncle here. Nora, thank you for being part of Storytelling Podcast Week, the Horror Short Story Salon. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into yours. Give us a little bit of uh, background as to what you're going to be bringing us today and some of the inspiration around what was uh, the catalyst for the story. Sure, yeah. Well, I'm very excited to be, uh, although a bit nervous to be uh, sharing stories next to two others, such wonderful horror creators. So um, bear with me on this one, but um, <laughs> I was really excited to um, try and write something in more of a short form uh, variety. I typically write a lot longer form either in feature films or in uh, longer form radio drama like cryptids. And so I thought this was a fun challenge to try and write something that was short and snappy and kind of um, had the beginning, middle, middle, and end, and not leave too much of a cliffhanger. But um, the inspiration for this was really, I was uh, camping with some friends, and we were trying to uh, compare some different ghost and scary stories uh, across the campfire. And it inspired me, reminding me of many childhoods, uh, childhood summers of doing that with my family, and trying to think of, of something that is very... Um, otherworldly while also being grounded in a potential reality. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where this came from, just trying to write something a little spooky and a little fun. That's terrific. And what is the name of the story that you'll be reading for us today? You know, that's a great, uh, great question. Uh, I have been calling it just my untitled campfire story. Um, so I'm, um, Titles are usually what come uh, about uh, into the post-production process, I would say, <laughs> for me, often. 
I think it's a great title, though. And again, it leaves you wondering what the what's going to be coming next. And I think everybody can enjoy a great campfire story. So I will give the floor to you to read the excerpt of the Untitled Campfire. All right. <clears throat> Do you want to hear a scary story? My dad asked my mother and me as we sat around campfire. It was late August, and the day had been a scorcher. The night was pleasant, but there was an eerie breeze that whistled through the pine trees like a whispering spirit. There were no stars in the sky, no moon either. I took a big bite of my s'more before answering. Well, obviously, I said. So soon. Shouldn't we wait a little longer? My mom replied. Why wait? I asked. A grin spread across my dad's face, and with a dark twinkle in his eye, he began his tale. Many years ago, something very strange happened, he began. Those involved were never quite able to remember exactly when or exactly where. But they definitely remembered what. My heart beat a bit faster and I got more comfortable in my seat, ready for the spook soon to come. There was a young girl, he continued, just about your age, named Melissa. One day, she came home late from school. She ran through the front door, already smelling the savory smell of her dad's cooking, wafting through the door of the kitchen. I'm home, she shouted from the door as she tossed her backpack and coat on the front table. I'm sorry I'm late. Hello? Melissa walked through the house until she reached the kitchen and found her mom standing over the stove, staring down at it, her back to her. Mom? Her mom leaned over a large pot of red boiling liquid on the stove, smelling it as though she didn't hear her. Mom? Melissa asked again. I thought I was late. Only a little, her mom's voice whispered eerily. Are you okay, mom? Where's dad? Oh, he's around here somewhere her mom replied in the same chilling voice. She didn't turn around. She didn't even look at Melissa. A bit perturbed, Melissa went upstairs to change. On her way, she tripped on a shoe left on the stairs. Ugh, Ian! Melissa shouted at her brother's closed door. But that's when she noticed. Drops of blood covering the shoe. And a fresh smear of blood across the wall. She touched her finger to the blood and it came away wet. Melissa's pace quickened as she continued up the stairs to her brother's room. Inside, angry, shouting music blasted so loud, it almost sounded like real shouts were coming from inside the room. Melissa knocked at the door, but no one answered. She knocked again, but it was only met with louder music. Confused, she went to her room, just as her phone began to buzz with a call from her boyfriend. Hi, babe, what's up? Melissa answered, slightly out of breath. I'm not feeling so well. Brian's voice choked out. What's wrong? He didn't answer. His breathing got heavier. My parents are being really weird right now, Melissa said, glancing at her door, her mind on the odd stew her mother stirred downstairs and the blood on the wall. Would, would you maybe want to come over for dinner? On the other end, there was only silence again. Brian's strained breathing was gone too. Brian? Brian, Melissa repeated to still no answer. A click and the phone disconnected completely. Spooked, Melissa threw her phone down onto the bed and walked out of her room. Mom, is dinner ready yet? Melissa began as she slammed right into her dad in the hallway. She hadn't noticed him as he stood outside her brother's door, staring at the wood in silence as the music inside continued to blast. Dad? Seriously, just tell him to turn it off. But he didn't turn his head. He didn't even look at her. She grabbed his arm and swung him towards her. Immediately, she wished she hadn't as she stepped back with a scream. Staring back at her was no longer her father, but a white-eyed, blood-dripping monster in his place. With inhuman speed, he reached out for her with bloody hands, the whites of his eyes blind to her movements. Melissa jumped back, narrowly missing his clutching fingers. Her dad, or, or whatever he had become, pressed forward, closing Melissa into a corner. Hungry, he moaned. His hands got a hold of her hair and pulled her towards his ravenous mouth. With a fire, Melissa kicked him in the shin, causing him to stumble backwards, giving her enough time to dart around him and back to her brother's door. Melissa reached the door and slammed against it, pounding hard over the music. Ian, help me, let me in. Melissa kicked the door and suddenly it flew open. Melissa gasped and stepped back as she saw Ian standing in the doorway, perfectly still and silent. His white eyes reflected against the hallway light. Flesh hung from his teeth and teenage stubble. Hungry. Ian mumbled, reaching his dirty fingers out for Melissa. She tried to dodge them, but wasn't quick enough. 
Ian got a hand around her arm and began pulling her towards him. With all of her strength, Melissa pushed suddenly against his chest. As she stepped backwards, she tripped and tumbled down the stairs. When she landed, she could hear both her father and brother following after her, stumbling from their ravenous hunger. Melissa rubbed the elbow she'd fallen on and ignored the dizziness plaguing her head. She bolted to the, to the door to the basement and desperate for safety in a moment to get her bearings. She got behind it and slammed the door shut and pulled her cell phone out to call Brian, her boyfriend, back, her fingers shaking and stumbling with every move. Come on, come on, she whispered as the phone began to ring. Click. Mel, have you heard what's happening? Brian answered. Melissa felt her breathing return, relieved for just a moment. Brian, they've gone crazy. I think they're trying to, to eat me. Who? My family, Melissa said with complete shock. Haven't you seen the news? Was all he responded. Melissa was about to respond with a sarcastic comment about being a bit busy at the moment when she heard the scraping of feet just outside the closet door. Her hand shot to her mouth to cover her nervous breaths. Mel, Mel, are you there? Brian asked on the other end, but she couldn't respond. She watched as a shadow covered the thin line of light at the bottom of the door. Someone was there. Melissa barely opened her mouth to whisper, help me, hurry, before she hung up the phone as quietly as she could. She slid it into her back pocket, her eyes glued to the shadow. Thump, something hit the door. Thump, thump, it continued. Melissa jumped, but her hand at her mouth kept her scream inside. Her eyes widened as her panic grew. Someone was trying to get in. In a whirl, the door flew open and a bloody hand tore inside. Melissa screamed and tried to get away from the grabbing hand, but another joined it, pulling her out of, out of the basement. No, please, Melissa shouted as she came face to face with her dad and brother. They grabbed at her, scratching and clawing as they tried to get a good bite. Melissa managed to crawl out of their grasp and under their legs. She pushed them back with her arms and legs and finally broke free for the kitchen. Her brother stumbled and crashed to the ground beside her as her father snapped at, her, at his jaws at her legs. Mom, Mom, are you here? She called as she rushed for the back door. She stopped short. There at the back door stood her mother, butcher's knife in hand, eyes pale white. Blood dripped out of her mouth and down her front. Are you ready for dinner, honey? She asked a wide-eyed Melissa. Her mother lunged for her, and Melissa dodged to the other side of the room. Her mother let out a terrifying scream as she chased her with the knife. Beside Melissa on the stove, an eyeball floated to the top of the red stew. She held back a gag as she suddenly grabbed the pot and tossed the contents at her attacking mother. The boiling liquid hit her in the floor, causing her mother's scream an inhuman call of pain. Without hesitating, Melissa ran to the back door and swung it open, thankful for the free night air. Behind her, the whole family chased after her, stumbling and screeching on the way. Suddenly, my father's voice cut off, and I felt a shudder run down my spine. I was here, back in the crisp, cool night, the campfire dying in front of me. All the sounds were gone, and the animals were asleep. I opened my eyes, realizing I'd closed them in fear. But when I looked around the campsite, my family was nowhere to be seen. Dad? Wait, what? What happened next? I asked. I swore his voice had just finished. I stood up and walked around the campsite searching for them. The chill of the night crept into my bones and I felt suddenly quite alone. Hey, this isn't funny, I said as I continued my search. I noticed that my father's truck had the front door open. I approached it slowly, looking for any sign of them, my fear and trepidation growing with each step. Hey, honey, I heard behind me. I swung around, standing in front of me with my mom and dad, or what they were now. White, glaring eyes shone like moons across the campsite. They stared at me with an intensity I didn't quite understand until I saw the knives in their hands. Hungry, they mumbled in unison as grins spread across their faces. Then suddenly, they began their fast approach, and I dived into the woods. The end. That was terrific. And I think a lot of our people here would also just, uh, I know I'm creeped out and I loved the story. I thought it was, I thought it was really cool. So thank you so much for sharing. And I'd love to open it up to feedback for our other panelists. I think we'll start with Janina to give their thoughts on it. Um, yeah, that was really, really great. Thank you for sharing it. It does, I think really well, the one that I think, I think all the best horror really puts you in a position of someone whose reality is some is suddenly wrong you know, um, and you managed to do that twice. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. 
Yeah, that was terrific. I think you get a real sense of the peril that the characters are in. And, uh, you know, like you said, especially when it comes to like, you know, the verbal and it comes to us using words, especially in this audio medium. Um, I think you were really effective with the words that uh, that you brought to us today. John, what did you think? It was an excellent story, an excellent telling. I, I think something I always really love, too, is that concept of someone's comfort is taken away from them. And family is comfort, family, or hopefully comfort and safety and normalcy. And when that's taken away and twisted on its edge, it adds a different level of panic, not just for the main character, well, what do you have, but, and what's going on, but what are you going to do now? And I thought that that was wonderfully done. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's, you, you nailed it very much, um, especially after the pandemic year that we've all had, right? I was trying to think of something where based on a, re, you know, a reality we can all kind of recognize to an extent, um, having the base levels of comfort and, and base levels of understanding of what reality should be taken away. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a terrific story. And once again, a big round of applause from our audience and everyone for you. Um, thank you again for sharing that. And I think now we are going to speak with Janina Matthewson. Uh, so again, Janina, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to hear what you are bringing to the Horror Short Story Salon today. Um, well, I think I have to thank you for inviting me to sort of buck the trend of the salon and um, ask me to share an excerpt from... Um, a novel, actually, that uh, I have coming out this year, co-written with um, my Within the Wires co-writer, Jeffrey Craner. Um, so, yeah, it's not a short story, but I'm going to read just a little bit of, of chapter one. Um, it's the first reading I've done of this book, so um, uh, I guess I'll, I might, uh, I'm a bit nervous about sharing it, actually. It's the first time I've done it with this one. Um, well, not whatsoever. And give us a little bit of a uh, backstory. What was the inspiration for the novel? Yeah, uh, so it's called um, You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, and it's set in a sort of alternate history starting in um, the early 20th century, if uh, if things were different. Um, it sort of lives through a, um, a world where instead of just having a couple of terrible contained wars, if we had uh, decades and decades of war to the point where the population was decimated and society was forced to radically alter how it operated um, in order to survive. And it follows one woman's journey both through the conflict and through the uh, morally questionable tactics that are used to rebuild the world in the aftermath. It sounds terrific. And there's, I think that there's a lot of groundwork that's been set in the horror genre around that kind of, uh, that kind of topic. So I know you said you aren't necessarily a horror author by trade, but I think it very well fits in with the, uh, the topic of the podcast panel that you're on. So whenever you are ready, please feel free to uh, read us the excerpt from You Feel It Just Below the Ribs. Thank you. Uh, okay. I was born into the apocalypse. It's probably unhelpful to throw around a word like apocalypse, and to be honest, I couldn't tell you whether it's even at. It looked like an apocalypse from here, or from now. From a distance, it looks like the world ended. Maybe it did. But, and I suspect this isn't something people like to admit. I've seen a lot of people who lived through that time not admitting this. It didn't feel like an apocalypse. It just felt like life. For the most part, anyway, I'm sure there were moments, you know, I'm sure there were times when the constant presence of catastrophe shook my bones, but for the most part, it went unnoticed. Familiar, like a nearby train that passes every day. Moments pass, and it's hard to focus on the chaos about you, war and disease for miles around, when what's in front of you is so close. I grew up at the end of the world, and all that mattered was what was for dinner. The generations who did not experience the Great Reckoning think of it as a cataclysm with a clear beginning and end, like a curtain opening and closing on a 40-year-long epic tragedy. But the end of the world comes neither with a whimper nor a bang. It unfurls its blossoms slowly, majestically, one moist black petal at a time. When I was an infant, the Reckoning was merely a war, 
born of allies and treaties, of minor uprisings leading to fists pounding across podiums, across continents. The war was messy and sprawling, having nothing to do with land or resources or acquisition. It was driven by nationalist identity crises and temper tantrums. It was waged by vast families with hurt feelings and destructive weapons standing under flags. I was born into war and I grew up in something much, much worse. People tend to look at events of mass eradication if as if they're simple, finite. A pandemic kills 100,000, an earthquake kills 5,000, and then it's done. We tend not to look too closely, so we miss the fact that disease, wars, and storms linger long after they're gone. The tornado passes and you are unscathed, only you die weeks later because of dehydration, malnutrition. You fall ill and seek assistance, but what medical facilities remain are overwhelmed by those with missing limbs or shattered bones. The idea of an apocalypse is a comfort because it makes death seem like something we can all experience together in a single moment, a colorful firework burst, but mostly death is something you keep to yourself. In reality, the apocalypse is most likely to be you alone in a room with the flu. I have known death all my life. I fear it, of course, but it is familiar. Death is a stray dog I have taken in and fed, not because I love it, but because I don't want it biting me out of hunger. I had a family once. These days, no one has families, so when I tell people about mine, it's all they want to talk about. That and what the war was like, I suppose. I can't help them, though. At this, di at this distance, all I remember of my family is their deaths. Mary, did you love your family no matter what, is one question people ask me. Even if you didn't like your family, did you still care for and protect them, is another. Is it true that families are tribes and tribalism is inherently violent, is another. Honestly, I do not know. It has been decades since my family was alive. I'm sure I felt something for them, but I can only recall for you my experiences. I remember being with my family. I remember huddling under the broken lumber of our home, hiding from German soldiers. Or maybe they were English. Maybe they were French. They were men with guns. That's all that really matters. I remember foraging in open fields, crouching in tall grass, my mother slapping my mouth if I spoke too loudly. I remember entering our neighbor's home through a shattered window after learning they had all succumbed to illness. I remember eating their food, wearing their clothes and reading their books. I remember the books were mostly medical journals. I remember my father forbidding us from speaking to anyone. I remember hiding, mostly in silence. I remember remembering them over and over again. How many times can you filter a memory before it's really just a fiction? How can you tell how many times your memories have been filtered? It's a strange thing to consider when you've sat down to write out your own memories. What is the point of doing this if memory is so unreliable? But there is a point I have to tell someone. I have to not confess exactly because confession doesn't require action and I need someone to take action. I have wanted to get the truth out for years. I have tried once or twice, not as hard as I should have. I don't have much time left, so I suppose I'm using the time I have to write out the truth so someone can read it and do something. But I'm selfish and I want to be understood, so I'm starting here, at the beginning, with my earliest memories. I'm starting here so I can trace the entire path that led to my greatest accomplishment, my greatest crime. Maybe none of this is relevant, but it's mine to tell and there's no one to stop me telling it however I want. So, this is what happened. This is everything I remember happening. And you can judge me if you like, but whoever read this, I have left pain in this world. Someone needs to fix it. Stop there or I'll go on for the entire book. I think that the excerpt that you shared really gives a highlight of what the entire uh, story is about. And I have a few quotes that I had really, um, like it was right towards the beginning. You said, I grew up at the end of the world and the only thing that mattered was what's for dinner. And then the other one was I was born into war, but I was living in something much, much worse. I think those are really highlights of, you know, the excerpt that you shared from, you feel it just below the ribs. I think, um, 
you know, especially with a lot of things that are, you know, already kind of in existence, I think that a lot of that can hit home. And I know that you, again, I know you said you weren't a horror author, but I think you, uh, you have a very strong place in the genre with this book. So, you know, I want to just give you a round of applause for what you were sharing. And thank you once again for sharing that with us. Well, thank you. Of course. And I'd like to open it up uh, first to Nora about their thoughts around the excerpt here. Sorry about that. Yeah, I thought that was just really lovely. Um, such beautiful writing and and a world that you're really building and creating. I think the the horror for me really came through with the tone, um, and and I loved just kind of this haunting eeriness to this that you're already discussing. Like the world is ending. The world has ended, and and what do you do with that next? And so the weight of that is really chilling and scary for me. Um, and it also, of course, has so many beautiful correlations to, I'm sure, many people's thought processes over this past year. Um, and I think you really kind of nailed the voice and tone for that. So I, I thought it was beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I agree completely. And, you know, I think you chose the perfect excerpt, too, because I think it really sets the stage for, you know, the world that you've created within this book. And I think that really taking it from that kind of first person perspective of this is my story. And you even said it kind of at the end, like do what you want with my words, but this is my perspective of it. And, um, you know, I couldn't imagine being somebody that's in that world or somebody then coming after, like, if you think about somebody coming and finding said writings of this person, um, I think you were just really effective with that. Well, thank you. <laughs> of course. And uh, John, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Well, as a uh, would-be novelist, I'm not ashamed to say I'm more than a little bit jealous of what I just heard. <laughs> oh, um, it, it was, again, it was beautifully written. I, I love the, when it comes to apocalyptic fiction and horror, the the loneliness and just that stark reality always stands out to me, especially like novels like The Road. And the idea of your death, most likely you'll be alone in a room with the flu. Just like, just that sadness of, like, even in death, you're just alone was really heartbreaking and really well done. Thank you. I uh, I did write that before the pandemic, but it feels obviously <laughs> a lot more painfully apt now. Yeah. Yeah, Janina, thank you so much again for sharing the excerpt from the book. And we see that we have somebody that was asking uh, what the name of the book was called. Again, you feel it just below the ribs is the name uh, that the book is called. Uh, when does it come out if it's not out already? Um, it's not out till November. It's published um, November 16th in uh, the US and Canada. Unfortunately, we don't have international dates yet, but um, it's available for pre-order from any bookshop um, in the 16th of November. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much. And we'll go ahead and we'll uh, be sure to share it on our social media as well. So again, any media that you have for it, please go ahead and shoot that our way as well. And our audience would love to, uh, to be able to experience the full book as well. So we are going to move over to Mr. John Grills. John, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course. I keep saying, John, my name is John. So I kind of feel like I'm talking into a mirror a little bit, but we have a uh, different spelling. So you, sir... I'm excited to hear what you have today as well. So please, I'd love you to introduce yourself, give a little bit of backstory as to what you're going to be sharing with us today. Sure. So I primarily, as a horror story and, and creepypasta narrator, I tend to read other people's stories. I don't read my own stories very often, but I've been writing a little bit more just to you know, kind of flex the writing muscles and and not get too rusty as far as it's all concerned. I wrote a story called Coffin Birth. I am always fascinated by clickbait articles on, you'll never believe this crazy thing that used to happen sort of thing. And I read this article on something called Coffin Birth. And then I watched the movie Autopsy of Jane Doe. And I was like, I want to write a story. And this is what came out. Very cool. So I will go ahead and leave the floor to you here about, and are you going to be reading, a, is it, you said there's a short, uh, I'm sorry, you said there's a short story or this is a part of it, part of a bigger. Yeah, it's just a short story. It's only about a thousand words. Beautiful. So I will leave the floor to you to give us the, uh, the short story. All right. I just finished writing my resignation letter, so I figured I might as well tell everyone else 
not that you know me and not that you care, but still, I think you should know. Up until about 30 minutes ago, I was a morgue assistant. My goal was to be a coroner. Was I worked in healthcare in some capacity or another since high school, volunteering, eventually getting paid, all trying to build up my experience. That was until Lady X. We didn't call unidentified bodies John or Jane Doe's for reasons, and the coroner I worked with just called some variation of X. We already had a Miss and Mrs. X, so number three was Lady X. Lady X came in without much information. The police said they'd arrived at the scene based on an anonymous call from a payphone at the bodega around the corner. The cops didn't say much, but they usually don't say much. It isn't that important that we know the details of things. It's a body. Nobody really likes transporting DOAs. First responders are there to save lives, or at least that's what the job description says. Showing up just to transport a dead body to people who cut open dead bodies isn't exactly a happy time. Still, there was something about the drop-off that was weird. I know some of it's hindsight, me piecing together things after the fact, so maybe at the time I really didn't think anything was wrong or off, but then again, maybe I did. Lady X is, was a 20-something-year-old Caucasian female. There were no external signs of trauma and appeared to be near the end of her pregnancy term. I would have guessed at least 32 weeks along. Keep in mind, it isn't out of the realm of possibility for a child to be delivered after the mother dies. But it usually has to be within a few minutes since the fetus relies on the circulatory system of the mother to survive. Short answer, when the mother's brain dead, the fetus won't survive much longer. However, there have been cases where the mother's body was kept alive so the fetus could be birthed. It's called maternal somatic support after brain death. Anyway, back to Lady X. There were no overt indications of decomposition, so the call didn't come in from a neighbor who smelled the body, which we got used to after a while. The body showed signs of rigor mortis, so she'd been dead for anywhere between one hour and a few days. I didn't talk with the EMTs who brought her in, but I had to guess they'd check for signs of a fetal heartbeat. Not that all EMTs were 100% at their jobs, but still. By the time she got to us, there was no way the fetus was still alive. So when I was working to prepare the body for autopsy, I almost fell over when I saw Lady X's stomach move. It looked like a rolling wave, the sort of thing you'd see from a baby shifting in the uterus. I immediately called a coroner in who ran some checks, determined that Lady X was indeed dead and there was no heartbeat, no brain activity, and there was no fetal heartbeat. When I asked what it was, to his credit, he didn't act like I was stupid or imagining things. He was a pragmatic guy, good at his job. I really did like working with him. If I made it to being a coroner, I would have wanted to be just like him. If I made it that far. No sense in worrying about that anymore, I guess. I was pretty shaken up, and he did his best to calm me down. I just couldn't shake off what I'd seen. I saw the stomach move. I saw the baby move. And that's when he told me about one possible answer, something I'd never heard of. Coffin birth. Coffin birth, also known as postmortem fetal extrusion, is the expulsion of a non-viable fetus through the vaginal opening of a decomposing body of a deceased pregnant woman as a result of the increasing pressure of inner uterine gases. So evidently, it's possible for a woman to die and for her body to expel the fetus. I guess there have been reported cases in the 21st century even. The coroner told me this was more likely just a matter of gases inside the body building up and causing internal shifting. After a while, he was able to calm me down and told me to take a few minutes, get something out of the vending machine down the hall, and come back to finish prepping. He even went the extra mile and said I didn't have to stay for the autopsy. I'm grateful for that. I always will be. By the time I by the time I got back to the morgue, something had happened. The body, Lady X, she was still there, but she was different. Her stomach looked deflated, like a balloon with the air let out. The skin hanged limp and almost a pile in the pit that was just five minutes earlier her pregnant stomach. 
and between her legs was a black streak of some substance. I don't know if it was ever identified, but it dripped slow and thick like molasses off the edge of the table. All I could see was that body, that streak. I followed the streak from between her legs off the table and over to the wall of coolers. The wall of nine cooler doors, normally pristine and shining, and most importantly, closed. A long streak of black tar ran up the side of the wall to each door, each door that was now open. I know for a fact that there were six bodies in the cooler when I arrived that morning. But when I looked at that wall, nine empty black eyes stared back at me. I don't know what happened to the bodies. I don't care. No, that that's a lie. I, I care a lot. That's why I quit. There were questions. So many questions. No answers. Missing bodies. Unidentified woman that had something inside her. I couldn't do it. I couldn't stay there anymore. I couldn't. I, I just couldn't. At the end of the day... I don't know what came out of that woman, but I know what its footprints look like in that thick black tar that leaked to the cooler and the tiny three-toed prints that let out the exit door. The end. I like how you just ended that with a jovial, the end. <laughs> that a, I think I speak for all of us. And again, uh, absolutely... Absolutely incredible short story there. And I think as uh, this goes for all of our panelists too, everybody here is a pretty fantastic orator. So when you and everybody here is speaking their stories, I think that everybody has a really strong uh, delivery vocally. So, and that even extends to you here. I think that there was a lot of emotion in this. Um, I think that there was a lot towards the end too, where you built up all of this content at the beginning and paid it off at the end. And for a short story, I think that's really important. So, Fantastic job from my end on that. Thank you. Absolutely. And I'd love to open this up to our panelists, too. Uh, first off, Janina, I'd love to hear your opinions on it. And I know, uh, you know, we would love to as well. Um, yeah, it was really great. I like how you managed to make normal life seem horrifying before you really brought the true horror. Um, it's always nice to think about how gross human bodies are. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. And Nora, I'd love to hear your feedback as well about the story. Oh, I loved it. I really loved the vibe again. I actually just recently watched um, the Autopsy of Jane Doe as well. So I was totally just in that world as soon as you said that. Um, and you just really captured it. And sorry with all these um, film references, but you also gave me some serious uh, alien vibes with that. That just sent some chills down my spine. Just um, the visuals that you described in terms of the streaks and the creature and the, the nine black eyes staring up at you. That was just um, very evocative. So yeah, just wonderful work. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I think with this story too, the amount of description that you put into painting the scene, um, any of the scenes that you painted here, I think was really effective. So no, I think that there's a lot to be taken away from uh, from the short story. I think that this one was really well done. And we do have some time here in the panel here. So I want to, with uh, some of our horror and suspense aficionados here, I want to open up to a few questions here. Um, one thing that I think all of uh, every author here shares is the ability to create a scene and, a cre and create this idea of suspense and uh, really engage and captivate an audience. So I'd love to go around the table here, the virtual table, if you will, and um, get some ideas on what everybody thinks is one of the most important parts around building a suspenseful, scary story for an audience. Um, and I think we come from different backgrounds, both audio, visual, and uh, written word here. So I'd love to open this up to Nora first, and we'll go with Janina, and then come back to John. Oh, um, yeah, this is a question I, I ask myself all the time. Um, as, as you mentioned, I, yeah, I come from a lot of the visual film background as well. And so for me, I, I always look to Hitchcock as the master of suspense, as um, how he is able to basically kind of tip the hat to the audience, letting you know about the gun that's under the table before the characters do. 
and that again that just being an example but how that can set up the expectations of dread within an audience before the characters even know to and so you're constantly right that that same thing in a horror movie of like the girl walking down to the basement where you're like don't go into that door like don't open that door because we know something that she doesn't know and so I think that suspense comes in lots of different places but it's really about building expectation and um, because more often than not the actual scare is far less terrifying than the suspense leading up to it. Absolutely. And I actually come from a similar uh, background with music and I've scored many horror movies short and long over the course of time. And, you know, it's very similar to that too. The audio helps build the suspense. So like you said, sometimes you're giving people something that the character doesn't know and it's you being in that suspense and the character might not know until the moment that they're supposed to what's going on, but you're responsible for creating uh, that environment. So I completely agree with you. Thanks. That's really cool that you uh, score for for horror films because, yeah, I think the music alone. I mean, that's always such a um, such a useful and and evocative um, tool for filmmakers and for podcasts. So it, that was a big tool for us in in the making of cryptids was utilizing sound design and music to really influence the audience's experience. Absolutely, Janina. I'd love to hear your answer too. Um, yeah, I think one of the one of the fun things to play around with building anything really, but suspense especially, is um, when you let the audience know certain pieces of information and having a deft hand with when you keep them in the dark, even if like that means telling them that there's stuff they don't know yet, or not telling them anything but giving a sense of it. You know, just choosing when to drop crucial pieces or to drop false pieces of information um, to, uh, I guess, un- keep things a little bit unsteady. Um, and I definitely think playing around with what every element that you have available to you, whether you are, this is written word or if it's audio or if it's film or if it's theatre, um, using all of the pieces of that puzzle, music, lighting, uh, sound effects, um, in a way that gives a, sli- gives a slice but not the whole, you know, to, to keep things a bit sparing so that people can fill in those spaces with their own, um, with their own imagination. Because obviously that's um, often a really, really powerful thing is to get people thinking in their own heads of what it could be. Um, because we can't scare anyone as well as we can scare ourselves, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. John, how about you? Yeah, I'm, with my podcast, especially... I tend to prefer first-person narrations. It's something maybe like you could tell from my read. Like I like to put something into it, like this person, they're telling a story. It's something that happened to them. Um, But first and foremost, it's a person that is trying to deal with something that happened to them as opposed to, okay, well, here's this fantastical thing that happened. It's this happened to me. So when I think of things like that, I look back on like the classic, creepypastas like Ted the Caver. I mean, this was a guy, an actual guy who went out caving and 95% of Ted the Caver is real. And he decided to turn it into a scary story, but it was realistic. It was a person. It was things that were happening. And I think the more that we can root it in that concept of this is a horrible thing that happened to me, the better it can translate on to an audience as opposed to and this is what happened to Bill. <laughs> it's this. It's this interesting transference. It's like, all right, this horrible thing happened to me that I can't figure out. Like people feel that more. It, I feel like it creates a better connection when you focus on the people that are being terrified as much as the terror itself. Sure. And I think that opens up another question, too. Um, in horror, and again, we'll, I guess we'll go in the same order, Nora, Janina, and John, how important is it to put the 
reader, the viewer, or whatever medium you're putting your suspense in, how important is it to put them in the driver's seat, even if you're telling somebody else's story? Because something that happened, I think, with the different stories, there were different point of views. You know, there were third person, there was first person. And, you know, you can really drive a narrative differently depending on who you put in the driver's seat. But how important is it to put the person that's there in the driver's seat of the character? Yeah, I think, especially in kind of going off of what John was just talking about, you know, perspective is everything, right? Because if it's just happening to somebody else somewhere over there that we don't really know anything about, that we don't really care about, it's not going to matter to us. It's not going to feel as scary. But if there's something about the perspective that is telling us that is connecting us emotionally to that character, um, it's always going to be more effective. So, yeah, I think, you know, um, often in, in film, it's really about kind of centering whose voice is telling the story, even if, if you're not actually having, you know, the voiceover narration, but it's like, whose eyes are we seeing this through? And if those eyes are, you know, um, something Janina mentioned, like unreliable, if that narrator is unreliable, then that's allowing us as an audience to be in the driver's seat, but in not understanding that we're not totally in control. So there's lots of ways that one can play with it, but I think perspective is everything because at the end of the day, stories are ways that we carry emotion to each other, right? Um, or it's ways that we can kind of tell about human experience. And so if that's coming to us from an actual human experience, we're gonna connect to that versus if it's just something that's kind of coming out of a void. Yeah. I kind of feel I feel like um, really putting your your audience in the driver's seat is one of those high risk high reward uh, narrative strategies because if you can really get them immersed then there's no payoff that big you know and you can do really effective stuff from that and I always think of um, you know the Spanish uh, movie Wreck where there's this one moment where the camera because it's a found footage film and someone is carrying around a camera and there's one moment where the camera is putting pull, is pointing in the wrong direction so something happens and we're too late to really catch it which i think is really effective and one of the like it's a really brilliant moment of filmmaking but also in the same format often what you see with found footage films is they will have to cheat you can see them cheap and uh a, you know something will be left deliberately this I remember one I can't remember one where an expensive camera that made a fuss over was left outside on its own so that the audience could see a door close and those are things that can if you're going for full immersion and you break that suspension of disbelief it's hard to get it back but if you do it if you nail it it can be yeah really really effective and impactful absolutely how about you John yeah the more the more you can get the listener, it's kind of a combination of one, getting them on your side and letting them kind of lose themselves in what's happening. And it can, it can work regardless of the POV, depending on the structure of the story. I mean, obviously urban legends, if you talk about uh, like dogs can lick too, or the hook on the, uh, on the rear view mirror, things like that, that are to told allegorically in third person, but people can put themselves in that moment they can be alone in a house they can be unsure in a moment they can suddenly wonder is that my dog licking my hand under the bed it's those like seeds that you can plant so if you're telling a story first person you can put the emotion into it and you can put the believability into it but the story structure can be is so critical too because it's also that like you can only put a listener in so strong of a position to believe what's going on. Like it can only go so fantastical <laughs> before it's like, uh, okay, you had me. And then it got weird. <laughs> so like the story structure and the urban legend and first person, third person, it can all work really, really well. It's, it's about kind of the more you can find those roots of fear that we all understand, like the basic concepts, like, fear of the dark, fear of the unknown, whatever. I think the stronger the listener is going to be able to be drawn into that story regardless of how it's being told. 
Sure. I think everything that everyone said is so true towards building that. And I'm going to go ahead and pass it back to Norma Jean here in a second. Um, but before we conclude here, same thing, Nora, Janina, and John, I'd love to ask you, what do you have coming up that you can let our audience know uh, is coming up uh, that they can check out? Oh, uh, thanks for asking. Um, we, uh, Devin, my business partner and I, we just finished uh, the DVD launch of our recent film that's um, talking about scary movies or scary stories. Um, it's an adaptation of Frankenstein uh, through the life of Mary Shelley, and it's called A Nightmare Wakes, and it's on Shutter right now as well as uh, in stores. And so that's kind of our big focus right now. And otherwise, we have a fun new short film coming out as well, um, hopefully soon, called Eat. Um, so yeah, we're, we're um, having a lot of fun on the film side right now. Perfect, and how about you, Janina? Um, well, as we've said, the uh, book, You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, comes out in November. And before that, we have uh, my co-writer, Jeffrey Craner, and I have uh, a new season of our podcast, Within the Wires, launching um, on the 12th of October. And that is, um, I think, probably our most concertedly horror season so far. It's a proper ghost story, um, which we're working on at the moment. And yeah, it launches on October 12th. Perfect. And how about you, John? Well, now that it's just about August, it's time for me to start getting ready for October. We Every year we do the 31 Days of Horror event where we release a podcast episode every day in October. And it takes a whole lot of work. So I might even be working on it once we're done with this call. <laughs> so can't wait for October to come awesome. I think this is a perfect precursor to October. And once again, Nora, Janina, John, I can't thank you enough for sharing your excerpts from uh, your different outlets. Thank you guys so much for being part of the Horror Short Story Salon here and part of Storytelling Podcast Week from Podbean. Um, I will go ahead and pass it back to Norma Jean for our outro and to tell you about the next sessions that we have coming up. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. John. Of course. Thanks, John, John, Nora, and Janina. It's been a true pleasure and uh, so many exciting things. We have a couple of minutes, actually. We've got about eight minutes until our next panel. So um, if there's anything else you guys just want to drop in, I'd love to hear um, before we read the outro. Um, I'd love to hear if there's any horror that you guys are fans of. You know, I have been rewatching probably for the fifth time at this point, um, Haunting of Hill House and uh, was reminded by uh, both of the stories today um, that were really grounded in kind of human emotion. It reminded me of that show. So that's just something I've been really enjoying again. Um, yeah, I've rewatched recently, I think for like the third or fourth time, um, The Final Girls, um, which is a great subversion of slasher film um, that surprising it's surprisingly emotional as well as being funny and fun and um, scary as well. It's a great film if anyone hasn't seen it. And uh, I've been trying to play catch up on more of my horror reading. Uh, I've recently been getting really into Grady Hendrix. I'm currently reading My Best Friend's Exorcism. Um, fantastic writing. I, I know the Final Girl Support Group just recently came out or about to came out, so I wanted to play catch up to... Uh, to read that, highly recommend anything by Grady Hendrix is really excellent. Nice. Those are all really fun recommendations for everyone listening. So we always like to know sometimes what the creators are into. Um, so thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, The Horror Short Story Salon, featuring Janina Matthewson from Within the Wires, Nora Uncle from Cryptids and Wild Obscura, and John Grills from Creepy, led by our head of marketing here at Podbean, Sean Kiernan. If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters or sessions, you can replay the program on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. Thank you again to Janina Matthewson from 
within the wires, Nora Uncle from Cryptids and Wild Obscura, and John Grills from Creepy.